0: Hello, everybody. My name is Nathan Amin, and I'm an author from West Wales in the UK. Uh, my most recent book was Henry the and the Two Pretenders, which looks through the struggles that Henry had after he became king at Bosworth.
1: That's right. Nathan Amin joins us to talk about Henry the Seventh and the rebellions that almost toppled him from his throne. Thank you so much, Nathan Amin, for joining me today on the podcast to talk about the Tudor pretenders. You know, life for Henry VII did not get all that much easier after Bosworth, and so we're going to look at some of the ongoing trials the first tudor king face. So thank you Nathan so much for being with us today.
0: No problems. Thank you very much for having me. It's always fun to discuss Henry the 7th.
1: Well, that is that brings me right to my first question which is I think sometimes people when they think about the Tudors jump right to Henry the 8th because that's where some of the soap opera elements start with all of the wives coming and going and the ministers coming and going but henry the 7th is such an important figure and i wonder if you could just share a few things about why henry the 7th is so important and why it's so important we don't jump right
0: to henry the 8th i mean i guess first and foremost without henry the 7th we don't get henry the 8th we don't get elizabeth the 1st we do not get the tudor dynasty so first and foremost henry the 7th is very important to anyone who studies the subject of the Tudors, or is interested in the subject of the Tudors, because we owe the Tudor dynasty to him. Um, His rise to the throne was remarkable. He is, without doubt, the most unlikeliest man ever to sit on the English throne. This was somebody who was not born to be king. Even on the day of the Battle of Bosworth, the day that he won the crown, Henry was against battling heavily against the odds there is no way Henry should have won at bosworth field against the great royal army of richard iii we often have this idea brought down to the centuries that henry uh, was responsible for uniting the war in houses of york and lancaster and many now try to claim that, that was just a creation of later writers like William Shakespeare to the propaganda. However, the fact is that Henry truly did come to the throne to reconcile England. Um, certain aspects of the Wars of the Roses may have been, you know, amplified to try and make him appear to be more of a saviour than he was. But the fact remains that Henry did end the Wars of the Roses, and that cleared the way for England to undergo the Renaissance period that it experienced under his son, Henry VIII. And so on, the timeline continues down to the present day.
1: That's great. I really like that idea that that he is the one who tamped down all those ongoing rebellions that had made the crown almost a revolving door. So that's really important. And um, he did end that war. So that's great. Now, that, however, didn't mean there weren't challenges to him. And there are a couple of young men identified in your book as the pretenders who ended up claiming to be better suited or better placed or better options to be king. Now, they're young men. So what made them such potent threats? to Henry VII, after he was crowned, he's sitting on the throne, and yet these two young men are really still serious threats. Can you tell us about who they claim to be?
0: I suppose, first of all, I should clarify uh, what I mean when I say Henry the Seventh ended the Wars of the Roses is unlike how he tried to portray himself uh, as ending them by simply winning Bosworth, Henry I had to get through his reign. So Henry ended the Wars of the Roses only once he overcame all rival claimants as well, including the pretenders. Uh, Henry ended the Wars of the Roses at the end of his reign rather than at the start. And that's because, as you've just introduced, there were further challenges to his authority. Now, the first challenge was by a pretender called Lambert Simnel. Uh, It's quite a complex matter, the Lambert Lambert Simnel Conspiracy, which is probably why I've written a book about it. Um, But in short, after Henry had come to the crown, most people believed the princes in the Tower were dead. But there was yet one living Yorkist heir in the kingdom, and that was the Earl of Warwick, who was Richard III's nephew from his brother George, the Duke of Clarence. This Earl, uh, Edward of Warwick, was in the Tower of London, but he clearly had a strong claim to the throne. Now, in the first couple of months of Henry Seventh Henry being king, there was a small rebellion by supporters of this young Warwick. But they didn't have a figurehead, and the conspiracy quickly collapsed. Lo and behold, suddenly a couple of months later, a new rebellion starts, and suddenly... At the forefront of this is a 10-year-old boy who his supporters are now claiming was the real Warwick. What's quite uh, what's quite puzzling about this is that Henry VII had the real Warwick in the Tower and he simply brought the real Warwick out of the Tower and paraded him through the streets of London and went, how can this other boy be Warwick when Warwick is here in front of us? So, this conspiracy didn't really get much support within England itself, but it did get a lot of support across the sea in Ireland. And this can probably be down to the fact that Ireland, during the Wars of the Roses, had always been quite a strong Yorkist island. And the real Edward of Warwick's father was, in fact, born in Dublin. So, suddenly we have a conspiracy in Ireland led. Nominally by this 10-year-old boy, but in truth by a group of Irish and German mercenaries and John Dillapool, another Yorkist nephew of Richard III. So, why, why did this conspiracy occur? I think it's as simple to do as there was a group of dissident Yorkists who wanted to get power. They've seen how easily a king can be killed on the battlefield and how simply power can be seized. So this is where the Lambert-Similar conspiracy um, starts, really. A a small dissident Yorkist attempt to claim the throne.
1: That's fascinating, because as you say, when the actual Earl of Warwick is right there, it seems like it would be a non-starter right out of the gate, but it did take hold, so why were the Irish other than so they've always been Yorkist supporters? Are there other reasons that the Irish were so eager to support Lambert Simnel in his claim?
0: Not necessarily. I mean, Ireland had always been a bit of an, a bit of an odd island when it came to to English kings ruling it and governing it. They always struggled to tame uh, what they considered the Irish wildness. Um, so you know, the Irish were always up for a fight. Um, and I think it's just as simple as, you know, they didn't have Google or Wikipedia to try and check the latest news. When when, when they're based in Ireland, in Dublin, in 1487, and suddenly they're presented by a legitimate earl, John de la Poole, the Earl of Lincoln, was a legitimate Yorkist uh, earl and a nephew, of Richard III. When he suddenly appeared in Dublin and went, everybody, see this 10-year-old boy. He is the Earl of Warwick. He is the son of George of Clarence, who was born in this city. And he has come to claim the English throne. There's no real reason why the people of Dublin wouldn't have supported that. You know, they would have taken this at face value. And in fact, they went ahead and crowned this 10-year-old boy, who we now call Lambert Simnel. They actually crowned him a king in Dublin Cathedral, which is a very bold move, really. Uh, Even in the years that Henry Tudor had been across in France, he never dared to crown himself king until he became king. that's exactly what these rebels did in Dublin. And with an army, an army full of Irish and German mercenaries that they hired, they invaded the north of England and they tried to um, flock south through Yorkshire, which had been loyal to Richard III. They hoped there would be this great popular uprising in support of this boy. But it didn't really happen. The people of England were hesitant to support this rebellion. Um, But nonetheless, you know, once you've evaded, you don't really have a choice other than to carry on. and That's exactly what the rebels did until they met at the Battle of Stokefield in uh, June 1487, where, with a bit of struggle... Henry VII and his royal army finally defeated them.
1: That brings us to an important point because I've seen the Battle of Stoke Field listed as the final, in quotation marks, final battle of the Wars of the Roses, that it took that one last battle. Would you agree with that? Do you think that sort of ended the idea of the wars
0: between York and Lancaster? It's definitely the final battle of the Wars of the Roses. There's no doubt about this. Um, It was a battle-fought between a royal army and another army that at least claimed to be representing the House of York. Um, It's an interesting aspect, this later part of the Wars of the Roses, because in our mind we still try and portray it as being a war between York and Lancaster. But this final phase of the Wars of the Roses, the Battle of Bosworth and the Battle of Stokefield... Are They're really squabbles between the House of York themselves. I mean, when Richard III became king, he splintered the House of York. There were people within the House of York who had always been loyal to Edward IV, and there had been people who had been loyal to Richard III. When Richard took the crown from Edward IV's children, all of Edward IV's uh, supporters decided they couldn't support Richard, and they flocked to the side of Henry Tudor. So Henry Tudor was really pushed to the throne by supporters of Edward III, Yorkist supporters. And this continued on to the Battle of Stoke Field, where Edward IV's Yorkist supporters are still supporting Henry VII. They're still on his side. He is their man now. They are now Tudors. And then on the other side, we still have this little Yorkist conspiracy full of those members who had supported Richard III and George of Clarence, just, you know, giving him one last throw of the dice. So it's still very much this kind of splintering within the House of York that's taking place. But Henry emerges victorious again. He wins his second battle, and that's it. We don't get any more battles again that have a dynastic air to them. Uh, Henry does have one final battle he has to win during his reign, which is another rebellion, but this time from the Cornish in 1497. But well, the Battle of Stokefield in 1487 is the final dynastic battle for the Crown of England during this period. So yes, Stokefield is the final battle of the Wars of the Roses.
1: Well, thank you. And thank you for that clarification that it's really squabbles within the House of York. And it seems like that's one of Henry the Seventh's. Greatest victories in some way is that he's able to keep the loyalty of Edward IV's supporters on his side. And that's what it really enables him to take the throne and then to keep the throne. So he's going along, and you mentioned that there's another rebellion coming with another figurehead. And I wonder you know, this first attempt had failed, or Lambert Simnel's, the person we call Lambert Simnel, that attempt failed. But a few years later, there's another attempt to find a young man and have him take on the um, identity of another claimant to the throne. So can you tell us a little bit about why this pattern sort of repeats itself where there's another young man claiming to be somebody who has a better claim to the throne than Henry Tudor?
0: We just have to consider that Henry VII had tried to reconcile England. And most people had bought into it, but you're never going to get everybody. Uh, when Henry swoops to power, bringing all of these Edwardian Yorkists back, you know, these old Lancastrians back to the, thro- back to the country. Unfortunately, some people who are around during the reign of Richard III are going to lose their jobs. They're going to lose their, likelihood- their livelihoods. And that's what happens. We just get some people, um, you know who who are anti Henry the Seventh. They've lost everything with the downfall of Richard III. So what do they do? They look to rebel. You know you were always going to have a small amount of dissidents around, and that happens again in 1491. So four years after the Lambert Simnel conspiracy has collapsed, this you know this handsome uh, teenage boy turns up in Ireland again, um, where a small group of english yorkist dissidents claim that he was first of all they claim he was the bastard son of richard iii then they claim he was actually prince richard the younger of the princes in the tower and from there a new conspiracy is born now this is a very complex matter trying to you know unwind just who was this boy that we call Perkin Warbeck um yeah, People are going to have different opinions on it and it's quite, uh, it's quite a contentious matter because it also ties into the fate of the princes in the tower. I think for my money, this boy who turned up in Ireland in 1491 was an imposter. He was a fraud. Uh, I think there's far too much circumstantial evidence around that suggests that he was anything other than an imposter. But the fact is, is that for the next seven years, he was able to garner support repeatedly in different countries around Europe to try and launch this attack on Henry VII. What's very important is that every country he gets support from happen to have their own issues at that time with Henry VII. So first of all, he lands in Ireland. The Irish don't want any of this. They've just been comprehensively defeated in battle four years earlier. They say, no thank you, we're not supporting another rebellion. Warbeck leaves Ireland and goes to France. France is in a state of war with Tudor England. So the French are very happy to support this this boy they now call Prince Richard. Henry VII invades France and brings the French to the negotiating table. He says, if you kick uh, uh, Warbeck out, I will leave. And that's what the French do. They move Warbeck on. He leaves France. He goes to Burgundy, another country now in a state of war with England. He gets support in Burgundy. He tries to launch another invasion in England. It fails. He goes back to Ireland. They don't want him. Again, they attack him. He moved on to yet another country that's in a state of war with England, Scotland. So we see a partner of Warbeck not able to land in England and create an uprising. He only gets support from people who want to go against Henry the Seventh for their own reasons, and that for me is something that's very it's crucial to understanding just why Warbeck was able to continue for multiple years. Um, it's not that Henry the Seventh was worried or scared of Warbeck, which is often said, it's that, well, it's just somebody just trying to attack you and is being funded by other countries. Because we have to remember, Henry the Seventh himself was to many uh, you know, to for many respects, a pretender, and he was simply sent into England by the French king to cause some trouble for Richard iii who would ever have believed that Henry Tudor, armed by the French, would have become king? So Henry knew this from personal experience. It's not that he it, it was not that he doubted who Warbeck really was. It was just that he had seen what had happened to Richard Third himself. Once you get on the battlefield, anything can happen.
1: That's great, and it's actually a great comparison because Henry had been in that role himself not all that long ago, and so he knew, yeah. Things, things can happen in battles. How seriously do you think other people, Henry, you s- just said knew that Warbeck was an imposter. How seriously do some of these people who seem at least for a while to accept him as Prince Richard, do you think they really believed he was Prince Richard? Do you think they just wanted to believe he was Prince Richard? Do you think he convinced people?
0: Well, Warbeck never gained popular support in England. Uh, when he landed when he tried to land off the coast of Kent in fourteen ninety seven uh sorry fourteen ninety five the royal he didn't even need the Royal army to fend him off the locals attacked him and sent him back to his ship. The local people of Kent didn't want him they didn't believe him. He went around to Ireland they attacked him again uh, then when he was in Scotland he led another invasion across the border into England, hoping that the people of the north would rise up in support of him. Well, they didn't. And he was so shocked by the ferocity of warfare that on the very first day of his invasion, he ran back to Edinburgh. He couldn't hack it. Um, And then later on, on his final invasion of England, he came up through the coast, um, the southwest coast. He landed in Cornwall. And he marched as far inland as Somerset. Now he did have support at this time from the Cornish Rebels. He got support from the Cornish just a couple of months after Henry VII had defeated them in battle. So again we can see this recurring theme that Warburg could only get support from those who hated the king. But the rest of the English, there was no popular support. He never gained popular support in England. And I think that comes down to people were either wary of war or they just didn't believe him they didn't believe his mission um he got one or two supporters in england of note one of whom being sir william stanley sir william stanley was the step uncle of henry the 7th and he was in fact henry the Seventh's chamberlain at the time that his conspiracy was exposed which meant that he was in charge of protecting or giving access to henry's um Household when he was at Richmond Palace and so on. So this was a very dangerous exposure that Henry found out that Sir William Stanley seemed to be wavering in his loyalties and may just have believed that this Warbeck was the real deal. But once again, once we add some context in, William Stanley was a disenfranchised member of Henry's household. He, above all others, had helped Henry win the Battle of Bosworth and he felt that he didn't get his just rewards. You know, his elder brother Thomas Stanley became an earl. William didn't. William was merely a knight. So after 10 years under the Tudor regime, feeling unhappy and un- unloved, we can easily add context just to why William Stanley was wavering. It doesn't necessarily mean he believed Warbeck. Warbeck was just another another conduit to power and glory.
1: Yeah, that must have been quite a blow to Henry VII, though, to have somebody that close be in a position to betray him that completely.
0: Absolutely, and this is where the fear of Henry comes down to. It's not that he feared who Warbeck was. Henry is consistent from the start of the conspiracy. He knew who Warbeck was. He had intelligence from the French. He always he always stuck to the story that Warbeck was. Perkin Warbeck of Tournay, you know, as early as 1493, Henry VII is sending letters. So we have to get rid of this idea that Henry was unsure who Warbeck was, and this is why he was fearful. He was fearful of men like Stanley um, betraying him and quite literally getting a knife in the back. Um, you know, Henry didn't know when he when he woke up in the morning, walking through his own palace, was today the day I am going to get betrayed um it can happen just as quickly as that, especially when Stanley defected. That's what spooked Henry the Seven, not Warbeck's uh identity
1: and do you think henry can this is one of the reasons that Henry continued to be um so determined to defend his throne and gather the funds to defend his throne? Not because of any particular threat, but because the idea of a threat or the idea of betrayal was so real to him.
0: Absolutely. I mean, Henry VII is often uh, derided as being a paranoid and suspicious king. I mean, let's look at his life story. He was torn away from his mother and his uncle at four years old. He was raised for the next 10 years with the Her- Herbert family who were his own family's traditional rivals. He was then chased into exile for the next 14 years, where the Yorkists were trying to kill him. There were assassination plots. There was uh, a drive to bring Henry back to England, where he may have been put to death. You know, Henry had always been a pawn, and it's only at 28 years old that he was finally able to take charge of his own destiny. So Henry was paranoid and suspicious, long before he became king, just because he had to be. That's how he survived all them years in exile. Now he's king, and there's plots, there's uh, pretenders, there's conspiracies within his own household. He possibly witnessed... uh, Well, he would have witnessed Richard's immediate end on the battlefield at Bosworth. He may have seen the way Richard's body was treated after the battle. Henry saw this. This would have created a great impression on him. So, of course, he was a suspicious and paranoid king who really wanted to ramp up the security around him. This is why Henry was the first king of England to have his own personal bodyguard. And this is, of course, why Henry ultimately uh, settled on his repressive financial policy to make him safe. He, He found the path to safety through money. And as I always say, I would much rather lose my coin to the king than lose my head.
1: It seems to me in looking at his life, especially after Elizabeth of York dies, he he has even less, I don't know, support from around, right around him because he just has so few people he could really totally rely on. His mother still, but um, not a lot of people that he really knew were on his side for good. So as as these two rebels are finally put aside and over, these rebellions are over, Lambert Seminole, Perkin Warbeck, done. Do you think there are other real attempts to knock Henry from his throne or is he secure from that point on? And I guess what I'm asking is the Delapoles and those others, how much... Um, danger do they pose through the rest of the reign?
0: The most important um, matter that's going on behind the scenes here of these two conspiracies is the Earl of Warwick, who is still in the Tower of London. That Lambert similar conspiracy was about the Earl of Warwick. Uh, Perkin Warbeck, once he got thrown into the Tower of London, another conspiracy occurred between Warbeck, the Earl of Warwick, and another group of conspirators who were trying to break both boys, well, both men by that point, out of the Tower of London. Uh, That's why, ultimately, Warbeck and Warwick were put to death in 1499, because Henry wanted to get a a, a, a matrimonial match with the Spanish, the marriage of uh, Catherine of Aragon with his son, Arthur Tudor. And the Spanish essentially said... We're not sending our daughter over to you until you take out all threats to the crown. That's where Warwick and Warbeck's downfall came. Now, with regards to the Dillapools, they weren't as serious a threat. Now, they were legitimate Yorkists. um, But by this point, by 1500 and onwards, Henry was insuperable. He had too much money. England had yet to rebel fully against him. Uh, they stood no chance, ultimately. And as we saw later on, uh, he did manage to get Edmund Dillapool back in chains in the Tower of London, and he would ultimately be executed under Henry the Uh Henry VIII, of course, mm-hmm. took things up a, an entire level, didn't he, when it came to, to taking out uh, rival contenders. People always say the Tudors like to eliminate all their threats, and I'm always Keen to say not the Tudors Henry VIII Henry VII Only has one person on his record Across a 24 year reign Of executing And that was Edward of Warwick And even though we can perhaps Claim that his trial was You know to some extent a show trial There was still there is still evidence of wrongdoing There that Um that were grounds for a judicial execution. Now Henry the se- Henry the Eighth, of course, just went a bit, a bit loopy, really, with regards to taking off the rivals. <laughs> uh, but that's a different story,
1: right? In in Henry the Eighth's case, being a rival was um, treason enough. All right. Well, this is a fascinating way of looking at Henry the Seventh and seeing how the rivals who were embedded into the whole story did continue to make claims and threaten his throne so it seems to me and i know this is partly because when i have you here and i consider you one of the experts on this whole topic the story of the princes in the tower is is part of this it's just really difficult to see Henry the seventh without seeing Richard the third and the princes is, is a big part of this. So can you just give us a little bit of your views? And I know you have them on the princes in the tower and what they represented to Richard and what they represented to Henry and how sort of the aura of those two young boys continued to haunt through those histories.
0: I think the sad thing is that the princes in the tower were just doomed by their blood and they were doomed by the actions of the men around them. And the other person who was similarly doomed was Edward of Warwick. Uh, Edward of Warwick, you know, through no real fault of his own, had to be kept in that tower by Henry VII throughout his reign until his death because of the actions of the men around him. And by the men around him, I'm looking at Edward IV, George Duke of Clarence and Richard III, the York brothers. You know, talk about a dysfunctional family who saw the downfall of their own dynasty. Um, the Princes in the Tower. Now, this goes back to Edward IV, their father. Edward IV, I mean, what a failed dynast. Um, if you're a 40-year-old man and you've got two sons, you should be taking care of yourself. You should be looking after yourself to make sure that you oversee the succession. He didn't. He partied too hard. He lived it up a bit too much, and he died early, leaving his two poor boys at the doors of wolves. Um You know, Richard III, as a part of this fallout, I always say I feel like he blundered his way to the throne. I don't believe Richard III was a tyrant. I don't believe Richard III went out to become king. I just feel, step by step, during fourteen eighty three, the only way he could ultimately protect himself against the Woodville faction and uh, possibly be in future, you know, executed himself was to become the number one man. But of course, I then raised the question of what to do with the boys. Now, we could sit and argue all night long, and believe me, I have many, many times, over what <laughs> happened with the Prince in the Tower. And I'm happy to accept all possible scenarios. Margaret Beaufort, Henry Tudor, they survived. Um, somebody else did it. Buckingham did it, etc. I can only accept all other scenarios if we always place Richard III as the likely culprit at the top. Let's work through that. And then we move on to the next next suspects any any police detective, any you, you know investigator of crime, they never jump to the third or fourth scenario when investigating a crime. You start off with the most likely and obvious answer, and that's always going to be Richard the Third anyone who anyone who doesn't start off on that point it's just being absurd to be honest. It's Richard the Third. we have to look at his motives, his opportunities, his means. You know, his reasoning, he's got them all. Now, the sad fact, of course, is that aside from the Woodfills, the maternal relations of the princes in the Tower, nearly every single main culprit, every single noble with anything in this period needed the boys dead for their own personal prosperity. Henry Seventh. if they died, fantastic. The path is clear for him. Same as Margaret Beaufort, same as the Duke of Buckingham, same as the Howard family. The Howards, their their rise uh, and the titles they held were taken from the princes. You know, they needed Richard the Third to be to be king, as did Buckingham. These were two families not in favour under the Woodfells and not in favour under Edward the Fourth. Their rise coincides with Richard the Third's rise. They're part of his inner circle. So they needed the prince's dead for them to grow. And then how many other members related to these people's households, you know, could have been involved? If you're just a lowly, if you're you're one of the Duke of Buckingham's servants, you know, yes, okay, you can be a servant to the Duke. Why not be the servant to a king? And so on. So it's just a sad fact that in 1483, so many stood to prosper with the boy's death. And that's what makes it a great mystery. It's a it's a very, you know, it's one of those kind of uh, murder on the Orient Express kind of scenarios. You've got loads of possible culprits. And that's why it keeps on going round and round and round. But ultimately, for me, the man overseeing um, their removal, the man who placed him in the tower, the man who became king directly as a result of this, um, a man who had, who, had, who had, it was quite a bloody rise to the throne. There were many people's heads locked off during this period for Richard to become king. I feel a Richard III is the man to answer for this crime.
1: Well, that has always made the most sense to me. So <laughs> I'm in total agreement. So, But I do appreciate the idea that their death benefited so many people that the possible suspects do go, that list kind of goes on and on. And it's unfortunate because individually or personally, they hadn't done anything to deserve it, but there they were in that position um, politically. So, well, thank you for that. I do appreciate um, your sharing your thoughts on that ongoing mystery of history. And thank you, Nathan, for sharing these ideas to help us get to see Henry in a little clearer way by remembering these two significant, important, truly dangerous rebellions, because they represent something that could stand to topple the Tudor's dynasty almost before it begins. And they reinforce what you said earlier, which is he ended the Wars of the Roses, but it happened more at the end end of his reign than at the beginning. So that's a great way to think about it and really laid that foundation on which the Tudors then built the Renaissance and the whole rest of the dynasty. So thank you, Nathan. Now tell us where we can find you or what you're working on next and what else is happening and how we can find out about it.
0: Okay, I am active on social media. You can find me just by searching my name, Nathan, I mean, either on Twitter, Instagram, or on Facebook. Um, you'll find me just posting some of my daily findings on there. Uh, I'm currently working on a new biography of the Welsh Tudors. So I've written about the Beauforts, Henry's mother's family. I'm now looking at the Tudors, Henry's Welsh background.
1: Oh, that's fantastic. I don't know very much about that. So that will be wonderful. It doesn't seem like there's a lot out there about the Welsh side yet, is there?
0: There's not. And what is out there has often kind of been obscured by myths and half-truths. And I don't think anyone's really brought the story to life as it should. So fingers crossed we will soon have a definitive biography of the Welsh Tudors.
1: Oh, I am really looking forward to that. And again, your biography of the Beauforts really sets that stage so beautifully and really points out all of the fascinating and important characters in that group as well. So thank you, Nathan Amin, for sharing your time and your expertise with us and for all the work you do to help history come alive. And thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll see you again soon. Thank you so much for joining us. Please, if you would, subscribe, leave a rating, and consider joining our patron family. And speaking of patrons, a big shout out to one of our newest, Christine Heyman, joining the Royals, Rebels, and Rebellions patron family. Please have a great week and let's keep shaking up history together.